0: Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special guest, Bronwyn Sorrentino, who is a recovering perfectionist who spent over 17 years in a high-powered, award-winning executive job in a soul-crushing industry before developing a book that she wrote called The Kiss Principles and stepping away from her traditional life working with people globally through corporate programs, conference programs, retreats, one-on-one programs. She literally has changed her life from what it used to be to what it is now. Welcome, Bronwyn.
1: Hi, so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: As you can tell, uh, Bronwyn's from outside of North America. She's got a bit of an accent. Where are you from, Bronwyn?
1: I'm from Perth in Western Australia.
0: There we go. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've i been to Australia. I haven't made it to Perth yet, but I hope I will do that on my bucket list. It's one of those places that I think is really nice. And it, I, I know why you live there. It's a beautiful place.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most extraordinary places in the world. I'm so, so lucky to live here.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go down in, in, back in your history there. Tell, tell us a little bit about your past there and what happened to you.
1: Yeah, so I spent almost two decades in the corporate world. Uh, and within that, for me, as a recovering perfectionist that I say now, uh, you know, I struggled with perfection so um, intensely that I spent every day doing everything for everybody else, making sure that everybody else was okay Uh, and basically pushed myself to the limit. So um, I ended up uh, having um, an extraordinary experience. uh, And um, sorry, I'm just laughing because I've got a six-month-old kitten that just turned the video off and all sorts of stuff. It's quite funny. Um, (laughs) She's not used to having uh, this sort of stuff happen. Um, So, yeah, so I spent, uh, you know, all that time looking after everybody else making sure that everybody else was okay, pushed myself to the absolute limit. I got to the point where I had nothing left to give and I still found a way to give more. Uh, And then one day uh, I was uh, at a GP's normal annual checkup uh, and they said to me, wow, that patch of psoriasis that you've got on your head looks like it's expanded a bit. Uh, And, um, I think it's okay, but we'll send you to a dermatologist and just get it checked out. Uh, And at that point, I'd had that patch of psoriasis for about eight years. And uh, so I went to the dermatologist, and the dermatologist said to me, that's not psoriasis, that's skin cancer, and you're going to need plastic surgery. Yeah. And and Uh, I'll just
0: interject there for a minute. In my former life, I was a dermatologist. And I was the person that was diagnosing this, treating this. In fact, I did something called Mohs micrographic surgery, which is an advanced means of skin cancer, where you take off cancers like that layer by layer by layer. And yep. an operation could easily take several hours, if not several days to take it off, because yep. the whole idea was to take it off with the least amount of tissue take it off. But yep. it was a very laborious process, and I saw thousands and thousands of people just like you,
1: yeah, yeah, so for me, you know for most people, that moment would be the moment that where they sort of stop and say, "Wow, okay, I need to have a look at my life uh For me, that moment was just frustrating and annoying because um I had no idea how I was going to fit uh surgery in for myself, uh and uh so I gave myself half a day to have six centimetres of my head cut out. And then I went back to work that same afternoon, looking after everybody else, making sure that everybody else was okay, back on my laptop with a bandage stapled to my head to make sure that the skin graft stayed flat, um, being violently ill because I don't react well to anaesthetic. Uh, uh, but, but that was all okay because I was looking after everybody else. Uh, And then four days later, I went back to the surgeon for the post-op checkup and for some reason uh, he left the room and I've looked across the room at my husband and said, is it okay? And and his face was just white and he's looking at me and he sort of is saying, "Um, oh, mm, yeah. And I thought, oh, my goodness, something's not right. So I walked across the room and had a look in the mirror. And the reflection of what was looking back at me was like a quarter of my head was missing. And the shock that I received from, from that vision uh, literally just dropped me and it flipped me into a completely different reality. Uh, and that moment was the start of uh, this incredible journey where I was immersed into, uh, you know, this space of having nothing but myself. Uh, to focus on n- nothing that I was responsible for, nothing that I needed to do, know where I needed to be. The only thing that I had to focus on was myself. Uh, and uh, it took me three years to recover and and build myself back from that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, no, uh, yeah, just the most no, extraordinary it,
0: it, it is fairly common for people to have a horrendous reaction to those big holes we put into people. Thank yes. goodness nature, re, re, nature repairs them. And thank goodness those big holes usually do very well. But the problem is the person doesn't always do well because yeah. they look in that mirror and they look like they're going to die. They look yep. like their life is over and their life flashes in front of them. And they say, oh, my God, what am I going to do?
1: Yeah, for me, um, it was – I got thrown in, into this space where uh, I could see everybody moving around me and, and everyone was asking me questions, uh, but I couldn't cognitively process what they were asking me. I couldn't, I just could not, I could hear them and I could hear the words, but I couldn't actually put together in my mind what they were asking for me to then come up with an answer. Um, and I went into this space where it's like I'm a monster, that's it, my life's over. Um, everything that I thought that I knew about my future, everything, all the plans, everything that I wanted to do, the way I wanted to do it, I felt like that was all gone. Uh, And um, yeah, it was just this, this really terrifying space of, I actually don't know where I am, what's happening or or what's going to happen next. So, um, you know, it it was. It sounds like we
0: had a dissociative reaction where you basically dissociated with reality at that point in time and and you you know in in layman's terms what you had was a nervous breakdown
1: absolutely yeah absolutely uh and um i think the scariest part of all of it was that i didn't understand any of it and so i couldn't tell any of that you know that i was experiencing to anybody else but because i just could not cognitively put anything together
0: Yes, and I I could understand that. I can understand what you went through. It is a pretty shocking thing to see a large part of your face gone and and literally uh, realize that this could mean that you could have died if somebody didn't catch it. It it literally means that this could leave you disfigured for life. It literally means that you could be like Phantom of the Opera, like having to wear a mask to hide behind
1: so,
0: Absolutely. And, and all those thoughts go through your mind when something like this happens.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I remember driving home from the doctor's appointment and saying to my husband, that's okay. It's all right. You can leave. I understand how bad this is. Uh, because of all of those things that you just said, you know, it was like um, it was going to be bad enough for me, but he didn't have to suffer as well was kind of the mindset. Um, and all I, all that was repeating in my head is you're a monster, you're a monster, you're a monster, and, and there's no escaping. It. Uh, and for a perfectionist, that was extraordinary, you know, because there's, you know, I have this hole in my head, I'm, I'm never going, I've never have the opportunity to be perfect again.
0: Yeah, and, and that, that is a shocking realization. And, and, and- you know it it's very hard to go through that and and you went through what we call post traumatic stress syndrome. you yep. also went what what I call a grief reaction where yep. you literally all the things that you knew up to that point were no longer there they They yeah. just didn't exist anymore
1: absolutely and in the following two years, I actually experienced my entire lifetime's grief to that point. So, um you know I had suppressed a lot of it because when you're perfect, you don't want anybody to know that there's anything going on, so you just squash any any emotion that you have um and so for me i got I got to experience that entire lifetime's emotion in the following two years, um which you know was extraordinary in itself
0: well that that is kind of unusual you know Basically, you had a flooding of all the experiences that you didn't allow yourself to Absolutely. have up to that point. You were too busy doing to feel. <laughs> you were too busy doing to let yourself feel.
1: Yeah, and for me, feeling was dangerous. Feeling, feeling gave people information that could be used against me to prove I wasn't perfect. So feeling just wasn't on the agenda. Feeling wasn't allowed.
0: Yeah that sounds interesting and and that sounds that that was a a real difficult time now in in your first book you say something about an aha moment during your recovery was when uh Greg Braddon, a New York Times best selling author and international renowned pioneer in bridging science ancient wisdom and the real world had a video up, and the video was, What if you, they're wrong?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that moment was a really, a real turning point for me because up until that point, I had done everything that I was told I was supposed to do. Everything, I ticked all the boxes. You know, I'd got the education, I, you know, got the university degree, I had the right job with the, you know, the right car with the right clothes, with the right haircut, with the right everything. Um, you know, I, I um, you know, climbed the corporate ladder. I, you know, got to director level. I'd done this. I'd done that. I'd cheaped all of the boxes that said, you know, that, that meant that I should be successful. And I was, I was highly successful, but I was also extraordinarily unwell and and miserable. I was so unhappy and I couldn't, work out what was wrong with me, that I had done everything I was supposed to do and I'd got to all the places that i would supposed to get to and I'd gotten there and I've gone, is this it? Is this really the pinnacle that everybody has said that this is all the things that you're supposed to do? And when I heard Greg Braden talking about um, what if they're wrong, you know, he really posed the question around, all the things that you're told that you should do, that you have to have, that you need to do, you need to be, you need to go to, all of those sorts of things. What if the person telling you those things is wrong? What if that's wrong for you? What if what if that is absolutely the worst thing that you could possibly be doing because it doesn't suit you and, and your needs and what you need? And for me, that opens this whole perspective uh, that, started my journey with questions and I love questions. I, I I use questions all the time now to find the simplest pathway through life because that starting point of what if they're wrong stops the autopilot in life. We have so many situations where we just fall into things without thinking about it. We just do things, we respond to things and suddenly we look up and we find we're doing all of these things in our lives that we can't stand they're making us miserable, they're draining our energy, uh, and we we wonder how we got here. How did I get to this point? How did I end up doing all these things? because you know when we if we'd stopped and thought about it and we'd had a conscious decision making process, we would never have allowed ourselves to do them and so for me, asking questions gives you an opportunity to. Stop the autopilot and, and actually give yourself space between what is being thrown at you and your response.
0: Bronwyn, go on with what you're talking about, about how you found this this author uh, and an aha moment and how that aha moment helped you reevaluate everything and put things back together again.
1: Yeah, so we're talking about the, uh, the the question, what if they're wrong, and the way that, that questions play a role in my life now. Uh, and I guess one of the biggest things that came off the back of that was this discovery that I was terrified of writing anything personal down. So, um, you know, if I had written something personal down, it could have been used as evidence against me that I wasn't perfect. So uh, I had this terror of of writing anything down, and that meant that, I'd never journaled, you know. I'd never documented anything anywhere. I could do, I could write, you know, for a business or an organisation till the cows came home, but uh, you know, writing something personal about myself just was a no-go zone. And when you're in that sort of recovery um, mode and you're working with professionals, um, the first thing that happens when you identify something that you're terrified of is that it becomes homework. And so my homework was to go away and start to, to, uh, you know, participate in the journaling process. And I was so scared of it that it took me three weeks to write one word on a page. Uh, And uh, as I, you know, started to work through that fear and I I used the power of questions, um, you know, what if that's wrong, for example, you know, what if it's wrong that, that I don't need to be afraid of this? What if it's wrong that... This is um, this could be the perfect thing for me. I don't need to be scared about this. Um, you know, so I started to journal and around the same time I started to put my toe into the water to go back out into social situations because I'd spent 9 to 12 months just, you know, in my own little shell really trying to piece myself back together and pick up the pieces that had, you know, collapsed on the floor around me. And people started saying to me, where have you been? Like we haven't seen you for ages. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only thing I could talk about really without completely collapsing into tears was journaling. Uh, and as I started talking to them about some of the things that I had been writing, people started saying to me, you have to turn this into a book. The world needs this. Everybody is really struggling with these things. Uh, and so for me that was, you know, I was so fragile and I was so broken. And I'm looking at these people and I'm saying, are you out of your minds, like I can hardly function in the day and you want me to write a book. This is just crazy. But it actually gave me something to focus on. It's almost like the pendulum had gone from every minute being triple scheduled, uh, everything just completely in under under control, under that perfectionist facade, and it had gone to the other extreme of, you know, nothing. There's nothing I'm responsible for, nothing I have to do, There's just nothing in every day. And that brought me back to the middle where I had something to focus on, but I didn't have the pressure of having to deliver on time or, you know, it having to be in any format. I could just allow myself to just write. And as the book came through, um, Keep It Super Simple was created, uh, and then that went out into the world and suddenly people started saying, I love this, this is amazing it's like you've written it for me. Uh, how else can I work with you? Can you do a, um, you know, a talk for our leadership team? Can you work with, um, you know, our staff? Can you do a workshop? Can you do a keynote? Can you do mentoring? Can you? And, and I suddenly had this global business and I'm still broken and fragile and I'm trying to work out how I can deal with all of this while still recovering and still putting myself back together but also how to, how could I do it in a way that would support my health and well-being moving forwards as well uh, and so that's where keep it super simple was born and, and has just created this life of its own um, but the principles within it really I just use those to support me every day uh, and now I use them to teach everybody else how to create the platform that supports them moving forward as well
0: And that's what it's all about. I mean, your book, Keep It Super Simple, is all about the struggles and trials and tribulations you went through and how you recovered from those trials and tribulations. You know, you talk about somewhere along the way in which you were trying to be perfect, you suppressed your anger, and that morphed into suppression of all emotion. And so if there was no emotion— then, of course, no one could hurt you in any way. No one could know the Bronwyn that that is inside of you. And, and she could just go on doing her thing of helping all the time, which was her thing at that time. But it, it was killing her inside of herself yeah. bit yeah. by bit and piece by piece because she didn't have anything left to give to herself.
1: Yeah, and and in fact under no circumstances was there any time for me to give to myself. Uh you know because then then that was taking away from time that would be given to somebody else. Uh and if I didn't give to everybody else all the time then I'd failed. Uh and that whole structure you know it I pushed it so far that I broke spectacularly, you know. And I know there's so many people out there who Um, you know, such a massive part of them is about giving to other people. But somewhere along the line, we we just get this mixed message that that means that we can't give anything to ourselves. And the reality is that until we give to ourselves first, we have nothing to give to others. You know, we're actually depriving others when we don't give to ourselves first.
0: Yeah, and and along the way, and I, I see this quite often in in women more than when. women have a huge problem with saying no. So they are, they're taking care of their families. They're taking care of their husband. They're on all these committees. They're helping with the schools. They're helping with all these other, they're helping with their corporations. They're building their corporations. They work all day. They come home, make the supper, and then they, basically crash into bed at night and start the cycle all over again the next day.
1: Yeah. And i um, actually, I think you missed out the bit where they make the supper, go back to go back to work and then go to bed if they're lucky. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. I, But and that used to be my day, you know, I used to, the alarm used to go off and I used to, I used to have this thought, it cannot be time to get up. You know, it just cannot be time to get up, but it will be okay. If I get myself to the shower, it will all be okay. And so I would drag my aching, you know, <laughs> tired, exhausted body to the shower and I'd get in the shower and it wouldn't be okay. And it still wouldn't be okay, but it'd be like, it's all right. If I can just get to the, if I can just get to the kitchen and have breakfast, it'll be okay. And I used to have that. If I can just get to the office, it'll be okay. And that used to be the, the, you know, the thought process was if I can just get to there, it'll be okay. If I can just get to there, it'll be okay. And nothing ever changed because I didn't change what I was doing. And you can only push yourself so far before your body and your mind conspire and say, that's it, enough. You will either crash and burn or you will die. They're your choices. You know, so um, it's so much easier to put in place tiny little steps now that that allow you to really connect with your life, connect with who you truly are, connect with the things that really mean something to you, and then align your life with those things You'll have so much more energy, but you'll also be able to give so much more. Like I'm I'm astounded by how much I can give now, you know, so much more than before, but I give to myself first. And it means that I'm energized. I've got the energy I need to be able to do those things. Either you're
0: an energy producer or an energy sapper. And the way you were approaching it in the old time was you were basically sapping energy. You were taking now you're revitalized, you're producing yeah. it, you're a person that's doing it. Now, in in your book, your first book, you also talk about the existence of triangles. And you yeah. talk about uh, Stephen Cartman and, and his idea that triangles are situations where there are three people locked in a battle of some sort that results in particular roles being played. Can you elaborate on that a bit?
1: Yeah, so triangles are one of those things that just it's an absolute energy drainer. Um, And you've got these situations in your life where you've got a victim, you've got uh, a persecutor and you've got the rescuer. And the victim is the one who always triggers the triangle. So they're, they're the one that always starts the triangle and the victim never, ever wants to deal with their situation themselves. They always want to bring a rescuer in. To cut to get in between themselves and their their you know um, uh, abuser if you like, and it's these situations where you know whether it's your boss doesn't get along with someone at work and they want you to sort it out, or it's within your family and you've got people who are having an argument and they neither of them want to talk to each other, but they come to you and they want you to sort it out and send the message back the other way, and at any time you can be any of those three roles. Um, you know, but in my life, mostly, I was the rescuer, and so it's it's part of that you know wanting to do everything for everybody else and make sure that everyone else is okay and it 's not until you step out of those triangles that you realize just how much energy you're wasting trying to sort out everyone else's problems when really the fastest way for somebody to sort out a problem with someone else is to just talk to them, just step out of the way and let them deal with it and and the issue goes away quite quickly. Um, So, you know, one of the things I had to learn really fast was to really just shut down the avenue for me to be the rescuer. And I guess even for the victim or the, the, um, you know, the abuser, because the more you get stuck in those triangles, the less time and energy you've got spending doing the things that you really love. Yeah,
0: that's right. Now, another thing you write about is the greatest prison people live in is the fear of what other people think. Let's talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I once heard somebody say, if you really understood how often other people actually talk about you, you'd realize just how insignificant what other people think about you is. We spend so much time in our heads worrying about what people will say, what they're saying about me behind my back, um, you know, what their impression of me is, whether or not they like me, whether or not I fit in. We spend so much time and energy in that space. And the reality is that everyone's busy. People don't have time to sit there all day, every day, just thinking about me and what I've done wrong and how I could have done it differently and whether I should have worn a different shirt and whether my lipstick's the right colour and whatever it is that goes on in your head, you know. Um, whether you know you handle that situation well, or we spend so much time worrying about the things that are past and the things that might come, instead of actually living in the present, um, and it really does keep us trapped in a prison-like environment. Because whenever well, we're in that mindset, we can't move forward. Um, so you know, one of my favourite quotes is, "What someone else thinks about me is none of my business." what's my business is what's going on for me right now in the present and whether or not I'm, I'm actually aligned with the things that are true to who I am. Um, you know, because, you know, my thoughts and the way that I think about things are going to be completely different to the thoughts and, and the way that somebody else thinks about things because we're different people. We have different filters. We have different life experiences and we'll see things in different ways. So, Whenever you get caught think, worrying about what someone else is thinking about you or indeed worrying about what someone else has done and, and you know, what they're thinking and, and what their behavior is, you're really just distracting yourself from the things that you need to concentrate on in your own life.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with uh, Bronwyn Sorrentino, who is talking to us about some great trauma that she went through and how she re- was recovering from being a perfectionist from all her life, and how she had to move forward and, and grab uh, some power back to herself, which she gave away to others. Now, Brian, when you say two of the most powerful words in the world are I am. Now, let's talk about that for a bit.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we use the words I am a lot, uh, you know, significant number of times every day, really. Uh, and what we don't realise is that our words hold, you know, extraordinary power in our lives. And whether it's the spoken word or the written word, when you use the words I am, whatever comes after that starts to really solidify into what you're saying about yourself. Um, and one of the biggest parts of my recovery for me was really understanding just how harsh and critical that inner voice was, and the the way that I was talking about myself, and the the way that I was really channeling my life, the direction I was really channeling my life, um, you know. So I had to really start to counteract against that critical, harsh, um, you know, inner voice. Um, and you know, uh, one of the things that happened in the real, in the very initial stages of my breakdown was. I lost a lot of dexterity. So um, I'd pick up a glass and my hand would just let go. Uh, and, you know, so the glass would smash on the floor. And, it, you know, wasn't an, it wasn't an expensive cut crystal. It was just a common kitchen glass, uh, you know, but it was the, the state that I was in, it was like the world was going to end. You know, the drama that came with it and the voice was, you're useless, you know, I'm I'm um, hopeless, I'm this, I'm that. And I and I really suddenly got conscious about the way that I was talking about myself uh, and uh, the way that I was referring to myself in, in almost every situation. You know, I, I became conscious of it because of these, you know, little acts like dropping a glass. But then I, I really started to tune into how I was talking to myself all the time. And I realised the power of I am. Uh, and so I started to really get conscious about contradicting those really harsh statements. So I'd find myself in that situation where I dropped a glass and it's like I'm hopeless, I'm useless. And I would almost um, have a little giggle and, you know, trying to really flip the emotion and go, actually, you know, all it means is that in this moment I dropped a glass. I So that I could really start to pull back on that critical um. I am situation and start to really, um, really identify and I guess acknowledge the truth of who I am Um, because I think we spend so much time chasing what everybody else tells us is right for us and ticking all the boxes and we lose ourselves along the way. And so it's really important to come back and start to really connect with the truth of who, who you are. So Um, I've got, I'm pretty sure it's in my second book. There is actually an I am exercise where you can actually go through and you can actually start to really write down, really, you know, connect and write down the truth of who you are and the, you know, I am intelligent and I am, um, you know, active and I'm athletic and I'm, you know, I I am an author and I'm like, whatever those things are, but really start to get them out and document them so that you've got them on paper in front of you. And you can start to really connect with that. Yeah,
0: and I think that's important because you start, you know, when you're a perfectionist like you are, or you were, is that you forget who you are. You're too busy doing to actually be. You're too busy doing in for everybody else than you could be for yourself. So you forget the things you love. You forget, maybe it's music, maybe it's dancing. Maybe it's doing something for yourself, like cooking for yourself rather than everybody else. You know, and so you forget the skills that you have that make you a unique individual.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Uh, And we are extraordinary, unique individuals. We need an extraordinary and unique solution for our lives. Um, You know, but we have to actually acknowledge and value ourselves before we'll allow ourselves to step into that space and, and actually have that unique, extraordinary solution.
0: Exactly. And, and you know, you would not at any point uh, say affirmations to you. And you wouldn't really say the things that were important to you. Everything yeah. else became unimportant, but the job you were doing, the job that's at right.
1: hand. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, it's it tough. So go, let's go through a little bit more about this the way that you got through that and about how that inner voice emerged in you so that you could be the person that you are today.
1: Yeah, I guess, um, you know, there's there's a lot of theories out there that say, you know, you have to shut that, that harsh inner critic down. And um, I approached it a little bit differently because, you know, she had kept me safe for a long time <laughs> in, in, in the environment that I was living in and the way that my life was structured and the way that I was put together. Because I, I like to say that the pre-post or like pre-breakdown, I was Bronwyn 1.0 and post-breakdown I'm Bronwyn 2.0, you know, and I've and I've really deliberately and consciously put Bronwyn 2.0 together, um, you know, to to really 100 percent reflect who I am and the truth of who I am. Um, you know, Bronwyn 1.0 was was very busy looking after everybody else and being all the things she was supposed to be. Bronwyn 2.0 is very busy being all the things that she wants to be. Um, And I think they're two very different mindsets and two very different ways of living. Um, And, you know, uh, Bronwyn 2.0 has a lot of fun. Bronwyn 1.0 was very miserable. (laughs) Um, So it's a completely different way of living. Um, And I think, for me, it's about really acknowledging the role that 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 inner critic had in my life. She kept me very safe, um, and I'm really grateful to her for the role that she played. Um, but I didn't need I didn't need that characteristic moving forwards because I'd built my life differently. So for me, it was about um, you know actually acknowledging her and, and rewarding her. So I've sent her on on a world holiday. Um, and, you know, she's been travelling the world and having fun doing whatever she's doing, uh, and every now and then she telepaths in and has something to say, and I just go, no, that's okay, <laughs> we're good, we're still all right here, um, and she goes off again and, and does her thing. Um, but I really embraced her, and, and, you know, I think we spend a lot of time trying to get rid of the parts of ourselves that we think um, aren't acceptable in the world, uh, and we spend a lot of time trying to be a better person. And really all that does is it just disconnects us from who we are, who we truly are and, and the life that is ours to to live. Um, so I think I really just stepped into wanting to be a whole person and just saying, you know what, I don't need to disconnect from parts of myself anymore. I can embrace all of it and all of it is amazing and all of it is extraordinary and all of it goes together to create the uniqueness of who I am. So, I, you know, I think it's along those lines of, you know, what someone else thinks about me is none of my business. Like I really live that now and it's like if you don't like something that I'm doing that's cool, it just means it's not for you. Um, what I'm doing is right for me and it's good for my life and I'm learning, you know, it, the, the, the things that I need to learn along the way and that's right for my life. And I share that as I go along and, and, you know, I road test stuff and I create things that go out into the world to help people make, you know, their lives simpler. But, you know, it's got to be in a format that allows people to create what's right for them. You know, I have no interest in selling my life to anyone because it's mine and it works for me and it's perfect for me. But it's not going to work for everybody else. My interest is in creating. That
0: sounds exactly what what life should be about.
1: Yeah, exactly. Another
0: topic that you talk about, and that is life begins at the end of your comfort zone. That is a very very important statement. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so our comfort zones, uh, you know, if we look at them, there's not really much comfort in them. Um, you know, they they're full of things that we hate. We we end up we're doing things that we can't stand and that are draining our energy. They're full of toxic people, toxic places, toxic activities. And yet we sit there and we go, Well, wow, I'm in my comfort zone. This is great. And and really they're they're actually killing us. Um, you know, and my experience shows that. You know, I was in my comfort zone. I was uh, I was an award-winning executive, you know, I was highly successful, but I, you know, it was killing myself. Um and I think when we, when we actually work out the way to dissolve the boundaries of our comfort zones, we can actually step into doing the things that we really want to do. We can start to really connect to the things that we really love, the things that give us energy, and we can start to really tailor make the life that's perfect for us. Um, so you know, comfort zone is one of those things that again we're so unconscious of it, and we're just in autopilot, thinking that we're safe because we we're we're within the known space, we know what it's like to live life here, and we think that we've got it under control. Um, you know, but when we step outside our comfort zone and and indeed even get to the point where we dissolve the boundaries and we don't have a comfort zone anymore, life becomes about playing. it becomes about an adventure and exploring and and dipping your toe in the water and finding the things that you love to do and um you know, I like to say, uh, you know, it's, it's just as cool finding out something that doesn't work as it is that finding something that does because when you try something new and it doesn't work and, and it doesn't, you know, you don't have the success you thought you would have, that's an immediate response, an immediate set of information that says you don't have to keep going down that pathway. That's worth celebrating just as much as when you dip your toe in the water, try something new and it does work, great. You just, there's more down that pathway for you to explore. I think we put so much pressure on everything having to work out perfectly and everything having to be a success. And especially in these days of, you know, social media and everything's highly visible and we feel like we have to really compete in every second of the day to prove, uh, you know, all the things we're doing and achieving. Um, you know, actually we should be saying, how, wow, I just tried this and it didn't work. And that was really amazing.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, you say things like when was the last time you really looked at something in absolute awe that how when was the last time you took the time to smell the roses? Very important things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're so busy proving all the things that we're achieving. uh, We don't actually experience them anymore. You know, you, you look at the number of times when you go places um, you know, I know it always amazes me when you go somewhere that's extraordinary. You're sitting on top of an amazing mountain and all anybody wants to do is get a photo in front of the sign that says where they are so they can post it on social media. But they don't actually stop and sit on the edge and just take in the awe. They're just there to get the photo and go. It's almost like car park tick. They've you know, been here and social media says it. But they don't actually experience it. They don't stop to take in the extraordinary view, the the air that they're breathing, that they don't take in any of that. It's all just about, look what I've look where I've been, look where I've done, you know, look who I've been with. Um, and there's no connection to that. There's no actual, um, experience being, you know, infused into your DNA or, um, you know, into your life.
0: Yeah, that that's rather important. And that's rather important for self-development. It's very important for you to see who you are. You know, we all begin as children, perfect children. And then along the way, the social factors get in the way and make yep. us turn all the way around. So we lose that perfection and we lose many of the things that we knew as children.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a... It's almost like you're, as children, you're encouraged to have that creativity and that imagination and that play and that adventure. And, uh, and then suddenly, uh, life becomes serious. (laughs) And suddenly, you know, there's only certain options that are available to you for you to go down that pathway to be this when you grow up. Um, and you have to start getting serious about where your life's going to end up and, You're only seven or eight or six or seven. And, and, you know, and and actually what I discovered um, in rebuilding my life is that it's the creativity and the imagination and the adventure and the play and the explore. That's what fuels everything. That's what opens the opportunities. And yet it's shut down at such an early age because it doesn't pay the bills or it doesn't do this or it doesn't do that.
0: Let's go on a little bit more about life and how you view it. You said life is like a game. And the game is where you're at one end of an immense field. And there's a shiny trophy on the other end of the field. And there are no rules for you to get from point A to point B. And you have to make it up as you go along. Let's go through that analogy a bit more.
1: Yeah, so um, as I was writing the The Economy of Enough, uh, this chapter came to me and um, it was actually really interesting watching it unfold as it came out onto the paper and, and watching where it was going. Um, and essentially, you know, I was really trying to view life, uh, you know, and, and how we're given life and and taught how to play, you know, everyday life. Um, and I viewed it as, you know, being on this field um, and it's almost like there's this really thick fog and you know that there's this amazing trophy at the other end of the field, and you have to get through why you have to get through field, the field to get to the trophy for you to be successful uh and there's all these challenges and these roadblocks that come along the way uh and at every roadblock there's there's a group of people there telling you what you have to do, what you should do, how you should behave um, the things that you need the boxes you have to tick for you to be able to get through that roadblock or around that challenge uh and um The more you listen to people, the more off track you get Uh, because, you know, your inner intuition will always tell you the direction that you need to go. But along the way, we stop listening to that and we start listening to everybody else. And so you work through these roadblocks and you go in different directions to try and get to this trophy that's at the end of the field. And what you don't know is that, the more you listen to people and you do what you're supposed to do and, and you do what you need to do in inverted commons, and, and what you should do is that you end up playing on a different pitch and a different field and you're actually nowhere near your trophy, but you have no idea because you're always doing what you should be doing. Um, and the whole crux of all of this is that there are no rules and you don't realise that there's no rules because everybody else is telling you that there are rules and actually the the only rule is that you get to do what's right for you. Uh, but we ignore that one. We, we sort of forget that one and listen to what everyone else is saying. And it's not until we start to come back to that one rule that exists around you get to do what's right for you and when you do what's right for you and you align your life with the things that are perfect for you, suddenly you're back on your own field, the fog lifts, the trophies, you know, well within sight. And in fact, you know, it's really only just one little step and, and you're there. Um, and so for me, it was it was just about, you know, this game of life that, you know, it is your game and we don't realise that. It's our own game. We can make up the rules. We can do what's right for us. And when we do that, life flows so much more easily.
0: Yeah. Another thing you wrote is passion is energy. Feel the passion, feel the power that comes from focusing on what excites you, Oprah in Winfrey. So how does that energy and passion work?
1: Yeah, so I think um, when we're connected to the things that are good for us, the things that excite us, the things that we, you know, we, we come away from experience with them feeling like we are so full of energy and we've got so much clarity about where we want to go and how we want to do things. They're the things that really fuel um, our way forward. And yet we allow ourselves so little of that in our lives because we've been taught that to give to ourselves is selfish. If we're giving to ourselves, it means there's less for other people. And actually, you know, a a lot of the things that I've discovered in my recovery is that the things that truly work are counterintuitive to the way that we've been schooled by society growing up. So for me, it was always, you know, give to everybody else because when you give to everybody else, nobody's looking at you. They're just looking at at what you're giving. They're not looking at you. And so, therefore, that that was a perfect shield for me for perfectionism. Um, but what I didn't realize was that by giving to everybody else, I was literally giving my energy away. Uh, so I needed to give to myself to have the energy to be able to really efficiently and effectively give to others at a much higher level. Uh, but that's really counterintuitive to, um, the schooling that I had, or you know, from for that sort of, um, society schooling that you get as you're growing up. Um, so, it, you know, When you find the things that you are so passionate about, the the things that you can't help talking about, the things that you you just want to be there and you want to be involved in them. Those are the things that will give you the energy that you need to really, um, you know, point your life in, in the direction it needs to go.
0: Yeah. Now, another part of your second book is a very important part. And and your second book is called The Economy of Enough. And and let's go through what you mean by that, because I think that is really the most important statement of of everything that you have said, the economy of enough. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, a lot of us spend a lot of our days um, in a space of battling against enough. So for me as a perfectionist, the, the underlying driver of that was I was never good enough. I was never fast enough. I was never intelligent enough. I was never um, uh, successful enough. I was never um, you know, pretty enough. I was never athletic enough. I was, didn't matter what it was, you name it, I was not enough of it. Um, and it didn't matter how successful I was. It didn't matter how great a game I'd played. It didn't matter how many awards I'd won. I, I would find a way to minimise what I had achieved so that it wasn't enough. Um, and I think we don't spend any time in our lives working out what enough is for us. It's a bit like success. There's no definition of it, but we all chase it. We're all trying to achieve it. But how can you achieve something or have something if you don't know what it is. And one of the biggest lessons that I learned with my breakdown was, you know, what enough actually is, you know, because two weeks after my breakdown, both my husband and I lost our jobs. Um, And so we had uh, a secondary trauma on top of my trauma of my whole life shattering. We then lost our financial stream, our income as well. Um, And I was completely oblivious to it. Because, because I was so broken, it was like, actually, this is irrelevant. I just I didn't even touch the surface. Um, and I could not cope with anything other than the basics in my life. So um, I, I could have basic foods. Like there was, I couldn't have anything that was rich or over the top. Or um, it was literally just the basics, whole foods that, that was in very simple form. Um, I could go for a walk um, in nature um, and I could spend time with my animals and in my garden. That was it, the basics in life. Um, and I very quickly learnt that the conditioning that we are given that teaches us we need all of these things to survive is literally just mar- a marketing ploy. It's just to get us to consume. Um, and so for me it was That understanding that basics and understanding how little we actually need, how little is actually enough, that really gave me a completely different perspective on what is enough within myself. Um, And you know, uh, you know, uh, often you know, when you come from countries like Australia, where we've got a much smaller population, and um, you know, we're, we're hours away from everybody else, and it takes you know, 30-something hours for us to get to the U.S. to go on a holiday or for business or whatever, um, it feels like we're a long way away. And um, so there were so many times where I thought, you know, you know my work going into the world, you know, well, it, it would be okay, but it wouldn't be, you know, at the right level for, you know, a country like the U.S., Um, And the number of people who said to me, you know, from the US, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is extraordinary. This is incredible. And it was like, I couldn't quite compute that because it didn't make sense for my level of enough. Um, And I remember going um, into LA and being part of um, a big showcase. uh, And um, I remember getting there and I'm thinking, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to be able to learn so much from the people that I spend time with. And when I got there, all of them are looking at me to learn from me. And I'm sitting there just going, everything was just so flipped on its head and everything was back to front. And it really started me um, looking at well, what actually is enough? Like wh- how how am I looking at myself? And it was really coming back to that I am conversation and really starting to um, recalibrate the truth of I am. And what is enough for me is really about um, taking off the rose-coloured glasses, taking off the things that limit us, um, having a look in our lives and saying, what do I actually need? What, what is marketing, you know, that, that trigger point where that's being hit that says, oh, I've got to have that or I might miss out. Um, what are the things that I actually need? What actually is enough? And when you start to look at that for your own life, it opens up a whole different way of seeing things. Um, And so for me, the economy of enough was really about, well, what is enough and why do we keep chasing more than that? Why do we keep chasing more than we actually need? Why do we consume over the top when we don't need to? So um, it really reconnected me with the earth, I guess, and and not needing to overconsume and really just being able to sit within what is perfect for my life.
0: Okay. Two more questions. Okay. One is you say we must be the change we want to see in the world, Mahatma Gandhi. What do you yep. mean by
1: that? Uh, I think we spend a lot of time, we, t- we touched on this, you know, really briefly before. We spend a lot of time pointing the finger at everybody else and saying that behaviour is, that behavior's, you know, not correct. I can't believe that's outrageous. Uh, you know, um, this person did this, this person did that. And while ever we're doing that, we're just distracting ourselves from looking at what it is that we need to heal within ourselves. Um, I think we forget that um, we are unique individuals, and uh, if you want to see if you want to see people not littering, then don't litter yourself. If you and pick up litter as you go along, so that that the pla- the, the places around you you know is clean and clear. Um, I think we forget that as individuals, we can have an extraordinary impact on the world around us. Uh, you know, if I, can, if I can help one person with the words in my book, then the words in my book are worthwhile. The words in my book were out there in the world and they're doing what they need to be doing. Um, for me, I had to go through a massive change process for those words to come out and for those words to be in that book. So um, for, me to, for me to have enabled people to be able to actually really simplify their lives, I had to go through and simplify the simplification process myself. So if you really want to see a change in the world, start with yourself and make sure that you're embodying that change so that you can actually show people how easily it can be done.
0: Beautiful, Brian. Now, last question and this is a tough question for some people to answer because it's, again, asking you personally. This show is called How to Live a Fantastic Life. How do you, Bronwyn Ciotino, live a fantastic life?
1: Well, I would say this. Uh, There is nothing that I have in my life now that wasn't readily, easily, and affordably available to me before I broke. It's just that I was so busy doing everything that everybody else told me I should do, being everything to everyone else around me, that I didn't take the time to understand that there are simple little things that I can do every day to make my life extraordinary. So for me, uh, it's about really uh, bringing the focus back to myself, making sure that my day is structured so that I'm supported in everything I do. And then that allows me to literally unleash my energy and take it into the world uh, and help people to make a difference in their lives. Um, I do the things that I love. Um, I'm surrounded by people, places, things, activities that I love. Uh, And I would say that 90%, I mean, we've all got stuff in our lives that we don't want to do, but we do because you know we love the people that we're doing them for. But I would say that 90% of my life is about making sure that I'm aligned with what I'm doing and that um, I'm having fun and that there's joy and there's happiness and laughter. Um, and when I do that, I'm fully energized and then I can take that energy and apply it in the world in a completely different way.
0: Excellent, Bronwyn. Bronwyn, how, can you tell people the names of your two books and where people can get them?
1: Yeah, so the first book is Keep It Super Simple. And the second book is The Economy of Enough. Uh, You can get them at any of the world's biggest online retailers. So uh, Amazon, Book Depository, Barnes & Noble, pretty much any country that you're in, the largest online retailer will have them. Uh, And uh, you can also get them through my website, which is uh, chiclife.com, so S-H-E-I-Q-L-I-F-E.com. And uh, I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, uh so can you, you, can can you spell
0: stuff. your name as well? Because again, that's a little unusual for our North American listeners.
1: Yeah, so it's Bronwyn Shortino and it's B-R-O-N W E N. And then Shortino is S-C I O R T I N O.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thank you for spending the time with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed your books. Thoroughly. There was a lot of knowledge there. And I must admit, we've shared a common path in many ways, Uh, you know, and it's very interesting how that common path has come out in in different works of art for you and and a book that I wrote as well, but very, very similar paths. And and thank you again for spending the time with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I've loved where our chat has taken us.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Alan Steven Leica here. If you would like to find more about my services, please go to my website, Dr. Alan, A-L-L-E-N, and Doctors D-R, and Leica, L-Y-C-K-A.com, com. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day.